Hey, good morning, everybody. <clears throat> Adelie, Charity, Jameson, Jake, and Kimberly, thank you guys for leading worship. Um, I really appreciate that because if you've been here in the past uh, on Sundays that I've preached, I've typically also led worship, and that's always, man, an exchange, <laughs> trying to get from one to the other and then back and get the guitar on, and it's always, it's always fun. Um, and also because... If I had to sing and preach, that would just wear my voice down too much. I, letting you know right now, I've got kind of a cough uh, that won't go away. Um, and I know everybody's, the hair on your back of your neck stands up when I say that. I don't have COVID. I promise. Um, I've taken a test and everything and ruled all that out. So I just had a cold a couple weeks ago, and this cough just will not go away. So um, it, if you would, please bear with me uh, through this. If I have to cough, I've just got to cough. It is what it is. I've got a bottle of water up here. Um, listen, I have you know, had to bear with you for five years. So you can bear with me for just a few minutes, okay? <clears throat> so, so <laughs> that is true, Miss Sue. So 17 years ago, a long time ago, 17 years ago, there was an aspiring student at Harvard. His name was Mark Zuckerberg. And he created a website called thefacebook.com. It wasn't a very flashy website. If you go back and look at uh, the very early renditions of the website, it's pretty ugly. Um, it wasn't very polished, but it did accomplish one thing really well. It allowed other students at Harvard to log in and to connect with their classmates there at the school. And, and it did this really well. It did such a good job at connecting students in the college that Mark Zuckerberg and the other executives at Facebook, they decided, hey, why don't we open this up to colleges all across the country? So that's what they did. They opened up Facebook to serve all the colleges in the country to connect classmates together. And for a while there, at the very beginning, you couldn't get a Facebook profile unless you had a .edu email address. And so Facebook's goal at the very beginning was to connect people, to allow people to interact with one another and to foster communication and relationships between people. And connection was Facebook's original intended purpose. And even to this day in 2021, although I don't believe them, they would still say that connecting people is still their goal. It's what they're trying to do. And the reason I don't believe them is because the way that we use Facebook today has completely changed from its intended purpose. We use it now for so many different things other than just trying to check in with others. We read the news, we play games, we watch videos. We cyberstalk people. We get our medical advice from Facebook. It's, it's really amazing how Facebook has now become just a hub of expert opinion on medicine and politics and foreign affairs. If you want to know about anything that's going on in the world and you want to have an expert tell you what is happening, just log on to Facebook. And you see it right there. Experts everywhere. My mother told me that the doctor had mentioned to her, she said, Miss Sinclair, there's something wrong, you have blood pressure that's too low. And I said, well, that's because you don't have a Facebook account. <laughs> and so now we can even use Facebook to treat medical conditions. It's really amazing um, what Facebook is now capable of doing. But that's the problem, though, isn't it? Facebook has shifted so far from its originally intended purpose that it's no longer really very good at actually connecting people anymore. If anything, more relationships are damaged and strained through Facebook than they are helped. And it would probably be better for everyone if Facebook just kind of stopped trying to do everything and just go back to its original 
intended purpose of trying to connect people. Over time, Facebook has become something that it was never intended to be. And because of that, it has probably caused more harm than good. Now, here's the deal of mine bring that up. is because the same thing can happen to us in so many different ways. Over time, whether it's through familiarity or boredom or distraction, we can get sidetracked into pursuing something that is not central to our created purpose. Now, in business and in church, we call this mission drift. It's whenever we, we drift away from the thing that we are called to do. This can happen to us corporately as a body, as a church. We can get away from fulfilling the Great Commission and making disciples. And this can happen to us individually as people, where we get away from fulfilling the Great Commandment. That is to love God and to love others. Now, it's that second kind of drift that individual drift that I'm most concerned with today. And I think the reason that I'm most concerned with, with talking about that is because that, that is kind of something that has happened to me. I've individually, as a person, I drifted away from the cause that God called me to. Over the last six months, I've been dealing with a, an unsuspected medical issue, and I've, I've written about that elsewhere. Some of you have read it, so I'm not going to rehash it all here. But what that did is that I, as I dealt with the stress and the hardship of that situation, my soul just kind of gradually grew numb to the purpose that God had given me. And I found myself just going through each day with the severe lack of motivation to love God and to love others. I was really just trying to just care for myself and to just get through the day. What had happened is that my circumstances had caused my mission to drift. And I was no longer concerned with the things that God had called me to do. I was just phoning it in, in so many different areas of life. And by God's grace now, I'm trying to course correct and, and get back to it, but I, I am left with just kind of a, an eerie reminder of how subtle that drift can be and how easy it can be to fall into that. And so that's what I want to help us combat today. I want to help all of us kind of refocus and refigure what is it that we're here for and to try to combat that mission drift and get back on track. So to do that, we're going to look at something that the Apostle Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1. So open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. That's where we're going to be this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 1. So now Timothy is a young guy when he gets saved. He's probably gets saved when he's around 15 or 16 years old. And after he gets saved, he follows Paul um, on his missionary journeys all over the known world at the time for about 15 or 16 years. So you can imagine, if, if you're traveling all over the world with somebody for 15 or 16 years, you, you're probably going to get pretty close to them. Paul plants a church in Ephesus, and he wrote a letter to that church that we have in our Bibles called the Letter to the Ephesians. He plants a church in Ephesus, and this church grows very large. And when Timothy is around 30 to 31 years old, Paul installs him as the elder there at the church at Ephesus. And as with any other large and important church, right, they were facing threats from the inside of the church that were threatening to take them away from their mission. They were threatening to cause them to drift, right? And namely, what was going on was false teachers that were coming into the church and that were convincing people to invest their time and their lives in things that just did not matter. It just didn't matter. We read about this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. Let's begin there. Paul says, 
As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogy, which promotes speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now notice that what Timothy is instructed by Paul to correct is false teaching that's spreading through the church. But interestingly, what's, what's unique about this is that everywhere else in the New Testament, when you go and you search in any of the other letters and try to find where Paul's addressing false teaching, one of the things that he is most concerned about is how this false teaching creates division and dissension in the church. Everywhere false teaching spreads, that is always going to be in contrast to the teaching of the leadership of the church. The, the leadership of the church, church teaches true teaching from the Bible. False teachers come in and they start to teach things that are contrary to what the leadership teaches. And there's a division that is sown. There are factions that are created in the church. The unity of the church is threatened by false teaching. And everywhere else in the New Testament, that's what you see Paul combating whenever he combats false teaching. But here, he's not doing that. He doesn't mention anything about division or dissension or factions or anything at all like that in this portion of the letter when he's talking about false teaching. What he's concerned with are myths and endless genealogies, is what he says. These are speculations, right? And he says that all of this is tantamount to vain discussions. They're just pointless. And he says that these that do this are without understanding, right? The result of this false teaching is not division, but it's aimlessness and futility. Paul essentially says, hey, these discussions that you're having, they are not worth having. They're just a huge distraction. All they're doing is promoting worthless conversation. You're all spinning your wheels here. False teaching results in meaninglessness. But Paul says the result or the, the, the aim of our charge, the goal of our teaching. The point of our instruction is not aimlessness or futility. It's love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So we should understand this right off the top, that any teaching that does not call you to love is not worth your time. It is only a distraction. It will cause mission drift. It will cause you to ignore the great commandment to love God and love God must flee from it. Love is the goal of the Christian life. This is what Paul says. This love, Paul tells us, is issued. It, it, it comes out of, it is the result of three things. A pure heart, good conscience, and a sincere faith. So let's begin with a pure heart. Paul says that purity of heart is one of three channels that will produce a Christ-like and biblical type of love. But now, whenever I was studying this passage and I, and I looked through my commentaries and, and was studying what, what other people have said about this, people that are far smarter than me, that, 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 that know the original languages, they were all saying, like, look, the New Testament concept of a pure heart in the first century is completely different than what we probably understand a pure heart to be here in the 21st century. 
that 2,000 years of history has kind of changed the meaning of pure heart a little bit to where the connotation that of a, uh, somebody in the first century would have understood compared to now is completely different. Now, whenever we think of a pure heart, probably what we think of is something that is good, right? Something that is clean. But that is not exactly what this means in the, in the First Testament. In the, in, in the New Testament, in the first century, what a pure heart means is something of singular substance and free from impurities. So kind of like pure gold, right? There's nothing else in it other than gold. So a pure heart means that there is nothing else in it other than one thing, than one thing. And what that means is that a, to have a pure heart means to have a heart that is composed of a singular desire, of a singular desire. That's what having a pure heart means. Now, you see this all throughout the Bible. Check out the similarity between a few of these passages. First, look at Psalm 86, verse 11. Here's what the psalmist prays. He says, give me an undivided heart. Why? So that I may fear your name. Give me an undivided heart so that I may fear your name. And then in Jeremiah 32, verses 38 and 39, God is speaking about the new covenant that he's going to make with his people. So this is a reality that he is saying is true for us right now because we exist in the new covenant. This is what God says. He says, they will be my people and I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action so that they will always fear me for their own good and the good of their children after them. What is it that God gives? Singleness of heart and singleness of action. Why? For our own good and for the good of our children after us. This is the blessing of the new covenant, that God is going to give us a pure heart, a heart that is set on one thing. And then in James chapter 4, verse 8, um, James is talking about the double-minded person, somebody whose thoughts are just all over the place. And he links this double-mindedness with purity of heart. Listen to what he says. He says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. So if you're scattered and all over the place, he says the, the remedy is you need to purify your heart. Your devotions are too many. You need to have a singular devotion. So in each of these verses, it is devotion to the Lord that is the result of a pure heart. That's why God gives that. Because that's what purity of heart is. Soren Kierkegaard said that purity of heart is to will one thing. A person who is impure in heart is unable to focus, pursue that one thing. He is a restless man, just drawn in several different directions, swayed to and fro by all the cultural winds of the day, getting into this argument, getting into that argument, debating this, debating that, not being fixated or devoted to one thing. But the person who is pure in heart is a person who desires only one thing. And therefore, they have a mind that is laser-focused on that one thing. Now, you show me somebody who is unable to commit to something for too long, and I'm going to direct that person to search the motives of their heart. Why is it that you cannot commit? Well, it's because you're pulled in so many different directions by your own desires. You can't sit on something for too long. And we know that to be true. The human heart is full of so much ambition, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, though, as long as our ambitions are aimed properly. But, you see, that's the problem. They're not. Like the false teaching that Paul told Timothy to combat, our worldly ambitions are vain and they are endless, just nonstop. But they're also very easy to pursue 
That's why we give ourselves over to them over and over and over. You remember the, the parable of the soils that, that Jesus taught in the Gospels? After he taught the parable of the soils, he explained what the parable meant to the disciples. He was breaking it down for them. And he said, hey, here's what the seed means. Here's what the soil means. Here's what the field means. And what he said is the soil represents the different kinds of hearts of mankind. And there are three different soils. And the third soil, he said, was the, uh, described a heart that received the word of God in the moment. But very quickly, it says that the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth come and they choke out the word, making it unfruitful. You see, it's just the everyday stuff of life that Jesus says is the danger here. That somebody receives the word of God, it, go, it implants itself in somebody's heart, but then the worries of life come. The deceitfulness of another pursuit comes. It chokes out the word and that person becomes unfruitful. Their pursuits become pointless. They become aimless, wandering, searching for something that is not good and is not true. Our hearts, when they are submitted to the rhythms of this world, we just go with the flow. And we find ourselves so distracted, pulled apart from every direction. There's a pastor in New York, his name is John Tyson. He had this to say about this parable. He said, the things that overwhelm us and rob us of intimacy and fruitfulness do not manifest themselves as grave spiritual threats aiming to rob us of our destiny. They just seem like, well, life. Travel sports on the weekends that rob us of local and religious connection. Season three of whatever on Netflix, which takes away time from listening to our neighbors. Relentlessly checking social media, which cultivates envy and erodes compassion. These things subtly seduce us and they distort our vision of life. They take up the space required for the gospel to thrive. Because you see, just living life will rob you of life. It takes intentionality. And just living life will rob you of initiative, make you unfruitful and ineffective in areas that truly matter. You just give yourself tirelessly to things that don't matter. And, and then you find at the end of your life that you've not accomplished anything that actually will still matter 10,000 years from now. An impure heart will be overly concerned with the here and now and will be ruled by the whims of this world. And they are many. Because purity of heart is to will one thing. It's to will one thing. And for that one thing to result in love, it must be the highest one thing that we could strive for. For Christians, that one thing is pretty easy to argue what it is. The whole Bible testifies that the one thing that Christians are called to pursue, the greatest one thing that we can make the aim of our life is the glory of God. All over it, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the chief good for all of humanity is the glory of God, nothing else. And the glory of God is God's chief pursuit as well. He is out to maximize his own glory. That is what he is trying to do throughout all of history. But you see, that is the beauty of God being the chief highest good that we can pursue. It's because whenever we make the glory of God our sole ambition, 
then we are simultaneously all at once, we are pursuing the greatest love for God, we are loving ourselves the best, and we are loving others in the highest way possible. And God is on our side as we do that, helping us to accomplish this. We won't grow tired. We won't grow weary of this. We have the power of God assisting us in this. And Jesus tells us that the pure of heart are blessed because the very thing that, is, that they long for the most will be given to them one day. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You make this your one pursuit, and you will accomplish it. Purifying our hearts entails removing distractions from our lives, freeing our minds to focus on the ultimate goal of making much of the glory of God in everything that we do. So the question is, what are you ambitious about? What is it that you spend your time pursuing? How is it evident in your life that the glory of God is your heart's desire? Now, if we do the hard work of purifying our hearts and of whittling our passions down to this one chief pursuit, then we can be assured that what we're called to love will be the result. But we have to remove all the dross. We have to remove all the distractions and focus again on what's most important. Fight against that mission drift and pursue the glory of God above all else. But a pure heart is not the only thing that Paul says is necessary to producing love. A good conscience is part of the formula as well, right? A good conscience is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. Now, a good conscience, what is that? It's freedom from guilt, That's what a good conscience is. It's freedom from guilt. If you want to love well, Paul says, then a good conscience is something that you're going to need. I don't think that I need to belabor the point of a guilty conscience. Scripture says in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 10, that the heart knows its own bitterness and no one can share in its joy. The heart knows its own bitterness. That bitterness there is like a rottenness, right? It's like an uncleanness. It's a sickness, We all know that. And those whose hearts, which is all of us, are afflicted by this, we're unable to share joy. We're unable to share love. Why is that? You know, a guilty conscience is just like this constant voice in your ear saying, you're not worthy of this. You're not capable of this. Remember what you've done. Remember who you are. A guilty conscience that is not remedied will have a very large impact on how you view yourself and what you can offer to the world. There's a reason why so much therapy and counseling that you go to is centered around the idea of forgiving yourself. You know, you've probably heard that a million times. Hey, just forgive yourself. You can't move forward with this kind of baggage. You have to forgive yourself and move on. It's an attempt to try and soothe our guilty consciences because they are such burdens to us. They prevent us from being able to love ourselves and therefore to love others properly. If we're racked and weighed down by guilt, it's going to just slow us down in every area of life. But you see, here's where I think we tend to go wrong with the idea of guilt. The the world tries to escape feelings of guilt at all costs. And they will go to great lengths to make you think that things that, that are bad are actually not bad. The world will legalize and normalize anything just to try to get you to feel good about yourself. Now, there was a guy by the name of Wilfred McClay. He, he wrote a fascinating essay called The Strange Persistence of Guilt. 
And in it, he described how over the last several hundred years, there have been politicians and philosophers that have tried to inject ideas into society in, in, a, in an effort to try to eliminate the concept of guilt, right? Now, you may have heard this statement before, but Frederick Nietzsche was famous for saying God is dead. And what he meant by that was he was, he was so grateful for the fact that society had, had turned away religion and had accepted science as an explanation for reality. And he said, look, now that we have this, we don't need God. We've killed him. And he said, now, with God dead, all will be permitted. That was the logical conclusion that he came to. He said, hey, look, now that we've moved past this, we can do whatever we want. Everything will be permitted. He believed that a society that no longer believed in God would no longer need to limit its own behavior. It could do whatever it wanted. Since there is no divine being to which we are morally responsible, then it's free reign. That seems to be the prevailing idea today. But McClay went on to describe that no matter how hard society tried to eliminate guilt, it was always there. There was a strange persistence of guilt that persisted amongst everything. He even quotes Sigmund Freud, who later on said, indeed, the price that we pay for our advance in civilization is a loss of happiness through the heightening sense of guilt. We cannot escape feelings of guilt no matter how hard we try. Why? Because the answer is because God is, in fact, not dead. He is alive. He is real. And he has created us to adhere to certain moral standards of life that reflect his holiness. And when we fail to live up to that standard, that's called sin. And sin produces guilt. The scripture is very clear about this in Romans 1. That our consciences are intended to clue us into the fact that there exists outside of us a standard to which we are obligated to. That God is the is that standard. And guilt is the natural sensation that comes whenever we offend that holy God. Now listen to me. We don't like to talk about this. It's not comfortable. It's not pleasing to the ears or to the mind or to the heart even. It's hard. But I, I just don't know if we have really spent enough time pondering the fact that we have in fact sinned against a holy God. Our actions and choices and behaviors have caused us to be at odds with our creator. The very one that we were created for, we have rejected. And instead, we've chosen to embrace the wicked and sinful and shameful devices of this world in place of him. We have driven a wedge right between us and life itself. And because of that, we are worthy of death. That's what we deserve. We deserve death. We exist in a state of enmity against God, and his anger and his wrath are kindled against us because we are his enemies. And we're using the grace that he gives us every single day to live and to breathe, and we're using that to, to fuel our and satisfy our own lusts and sinful desires. That tr- kind of treason merits us eternal damnation, and we deserve every single ounce of it. I don't know if we really stop and think too long about how much wrath we deserve and about how wicked and evil and sinful it is that we have rebelled against a holy God. And our guilt is intended to show us that. That's what our guilt is for. But you see, that's also the grace that is evident in the guilt. 
is because in pricking our consciences, God is cluing us into the fact that things are not the way that they are supposed to be. When we feel the sting of guilt, what we're supposed to do is the same thing that we do whenever we offend anybody. We go to that person. Whenever we feel the sting of guilt, we go to God and we beg for mercy and we beg for forgiveness. And then the most amazing thing happens. God looks at us. He sees us on the dirt in our knees pleading for mercy. And he says, of course. I have already made provision for your sin. This very thing that you're asking me to take away, I've already taken away. In fact, I've taken it from you and I've placed it upon my perfect son and I've driven a nail right through it. You're free. You see, it was love that did that 2,000 years ago. Jesus Christ, in his love for us, he came and he lived a completely perfect life. And then he offered that life as a perfect sacrifice to God so that through our repentance and faith, we may lay claim on that righteous life that he lived. The guilt you feel, you are supposed to feel it. It is a good thing that you feel it because it's what's necessary for sinners to understand that they are, in fact, sinners. But guilty is not where you are supposed to stay. When you admit your guilt and repent of your sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus, your guilt is washed away by the blood of Jesus. That's exactly what Hebrews 9.14 says, that the blood of Jesus is sufficient to cleanse our conscience from dead works and to make us alive to God. Forgiveness for your sins is freely available. And where there is forgiveness, there is no guilt. You have a clean conscience. And this frees you up to love. And Jesus tells us that this principle is true in the story of the adulterous woman in John 8. That whoever is forgiven much, loves much. And how much love are we capable of then if we have been forgiven a myriad of crimes by God? Now, if you want to love well and therefore fulfill God's purpose for your life, then you cannot have guilt holding you back. You can't. The gift of a good conscience is available to you in the gospel. You take that gift. You can lay claim to it right now. And for those of us that already have that gift, that we've already received this, that it's ours, we claim it, then ask yourself, how can you revive your delight in that gift? Has your wonder about what God has done, has that waned? What can you do to revive that wonder in your heart? We need to remind one another of this good news. We need to help soothe one another's conscience in the gospel. Because by doing so, we're going to be better able to love one another, love God, and love ourselves. We need to understand and experience the freedom that God has given us from a guilty conscience. And that is through the blood of Jesus Christ. So the aim of our charge then, the goal that we need to be striving for, Paul says, is love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. It's the last one, a sincere faith. Now, sincere in this verse means without hypocrisy. That's what that means. So what Paul is saying is that love is the result of actually living out our faith in a non-hypocritical way. Now, if you're anything like me, when you heard me say that, you probably braced yourself just getting ready to get chewed out. But that's not how I want to end this. That's, 
I don't feel like that's a fitting ending to this this morning. There are two different ways that you can convince somebody of something. You can either show them the beauty of the thing that you want to convince them of, or you can convince them of the ugliness of the alternative. Now, the alternative of sincere faith is hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is not hard to make it seem ugly, right? I mean, none of us like it. None of us appreciate it. We don't tolerate it from anybody, from our family, from our politicians, from our leaders. Hypocrisy is, it just smells so bad. Children can smell it from a mile away before they even know what it is, right? They're, they're clued into that kind of hypocrisy. It's something that just makes us recoil in anger, disgust whenever we see it. We just do not have much patience for people who are hypocritical, except for us, except for ourselves. Whenever it's us that's on the receiving end of the charge of hypocrisy, we've always got excuses. There's justification for us. It's just not justification for anybody else. So no, I, I, I mean, I think we all get that. I don't think I have to try very hard to convince you that hypocrisy is something to be avoided. Instead... I want to explore what it is about sincerity and what it is about sincere faith that is beautiful, that is appealing, that, is, that brings delight to us. Paul told Timothy that sincere faith was necessary to produce genuine love, pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. But in the next letter that he wrote Timothy, in 2 Timothy, he said, Timothy, you have this kind of sincere faith. This is what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Paul says, I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Now, a guy named Jacob Abshire, he pointed out from this passage several qualities of a sincere faith that make it beautiful to us. And first, sincere faith is divine in origin. Sincere faith is divine in origin. Paul begins as he says, look, I thank God for this. I thank God for the sincere faith that you had, that dwelt in your grandmother and then your mother and then now that you have. Sincere faith is a gift from God. Whenever we see somebody that we know is the real deal, we know that God has blessed them. What we are witnessing is a miracle of divine grace. The human heart is incapable of producing on its own a faith that believes in Jesus Christ sincerely. That has to be given to us from God. So those in your life that you know are, hey, they actually believe this. This is sincere. This isn't just hypothetical for them. This is the real deal. You can thank God for that just like Paul did because what you're seeing is something divine. What you're seeing is the work of God in the world. Second, a sincere faith is satisfying. It's satisfying. Paul says that he thanks God for Timothy's sincere faith with a clear conscience. With a clear conscience. You see, a sincere faith brings about the easing of guilt that we just talked about. It grants peace to our restless 
hearts and it soothes and satisfies our soul. It eases our conscience. A sincere faith will believe that Christ truly has paid for all of your sin. A sincere faith will believe that there is no more sacrifice that you need to offer in order to try to make amends with God. A sincere faith will believe that you actually are free. And that sincere faith will overflow and bubble up and spill out as love on those around you. Because you are not shackled by the weight of a guilty conscience. Christ has set you free from that. Now, a faith that only pays lip service to the cross, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think that you're going to be able to walk around and put your head on your pillow at night with a clean conscience because you don't truly believe that Christ has paid it all. But a sincere faith will say, no, there's nothing else I need to do. I'm free to love. I do not have to measure up for myself in any way. Christ has done that. It is satisfying. It brings rest. It brings peace. And you're free to love. Third, a sincere faith is evidence of the faithfulness of others. Paul says that Timothy's sincere faith dwelt first in his grandmother and then his mother, right? So what happened is Paul went and shared the gospel with Timothy's grandmother, Lois. And Timothy's grandmother, Lois, believed the gospel with all of her heart. And she poured that truth into her daughter, Eunice. And Eunice grew up being taught the way of the Lord, and she grew to believe that with all of her heart. And then she had a son, Timothy, and she poured into Timothy the things that her mother had poured into her. And she and Timothy came to believe that Jesus Christ is his Lord and Savior, that he's the king of the world. So what happens is whenever you see someone with a sincere faith, it is because someone else was able to share the gospel with them, that they were faithful to carry out the Great Commission, to call them to repentance, and to disciple them in the way of Jesus. Sincere faith is a sign of the faithfulness of other saints in the world. It is an indication to us that what we are doing here actually matters. Whenever you walk out there, or perhaps you're sitting in here and you can look around and see somebody that you know has a sincere faith, that is an indication to you that this gospel that we preach is powerful, that it is effective, that it actually can change people's lives because it changed theirs. That is the testimony that a sincere faith is to those in the world. It is evidence of the faithfulness of others and the power of the gospel. Fourth, sincere faith is empowering in and of itself. A sincere faith is empowering. Paul recounts Timothy's sincere faith and then says, look, for this reason. So because of your sincere faith, he says, fan into flame the gift of God. You see, it's sincere faith. Faith that actually believes that God is capable of doing what he says that he can do, that is capable of moving mountains. It only takes a little, right, just the size of a mustard seed. But that shows you that the power of the purity of just a little amount of sincere faith is able to change the world. Now, those who have a sincere faith are capable of this. He says, because of this faith that you have, fan into flame that gift of God that has been given to you. Let that fuel your desire to go out and command mountains to be moved into the sea. 
Let that fuel your resolve that you're going to go out and you are going to speak. And there is going to be power in those words. Not because you are powerful, but because the faith that you have in a God who can enact that change is with you. Sincere faith will empower and embolden you to go out into the world with a confidence and a resolve that nothing can touch you because God is with you. I think we need that. I think the world needs that. And fifth, sincere faith is powerful. It is empowering in that it emboldens us, but it is also powerful in and of itself. Paul tells Timothy that the consequence of a sincere faith, he says, is a spirit of power and of love and self-control. See, faith equips us for a life of godliness. And it is powerful because it is the conduit by which God's power works through us. As Paul said, he said, the life I now live right now, I live by faith in the Son of God who died for me. And so God has not only called us to great heights of power and love and self-control, but he has given us the very means by which we can carry that out, and that is through a sincere faith. Sincere faith is divine. It's satisfying. It's, it is evidence of the faithfulness of others. It is empowering and in itself is powerful. Now think about this. When you see someone who is living out a sincere faith in this way, what could be more beautiful? What could be more appealing? You are witness to a divine miracle. You are witness. You can see with your eyes an all-satisfying treasure, an empowering and powerful display of the faithfulness of other brothers and sisters throughout history and the faithfulness of God to move in the life of another person. When you see that in others, isn't your faith stirred up as well? And what about whenever you display that kind of sincere faith? Don't you want that? Don't you desire that? Whenever you put that on display for others, then it's not only you who have received a blessing from God, but it's those around you too. You're able to truly love others by being a blessing to them. You're a walking billboard of, to the world of the power of God to grant to undeserving sinners a hope and a joy that will never fade because you're not just walking the walk. You're not just talking the talk, you're also walking the walk. Your faith is not just an idea that you entertain, right? It's a lifestyle that you live. It's tangible. You've put feet on it. It's concrete. It's something that you can actually demonstrate to the world. It is a display of love to both you, to God, and to others. And a single ounce of sincere faith has the power in a moment to undo the damage of thousands of years of hypocrisy. That's what the power of sincere faith is. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I think that the world right now needs this, needs to see this. I think we need this. So in this moment, we've been called by the Bible, by Scripture, to something that is beyond us, guys. We've been called to exhibit a love that is the culmination of three things that are impossible for us to fabricate, to manufacture. We must have pure hearts. We must have hearts that are fixated upon this one goal that God has given us, to make much of him in everything that we do. Now, I don't know about you, but no matter how hard I try, it is so hard for me to, to have that kind of focus in my life. There's so many things that are, want to pull me away from this, but I know that whenever I give myself to this, that's when I'm most happy. That's when I'm most joyful. That is when I'm most assured of my place before God. 
That is when I'm most effective in the world to do what God has called me to do, is when I'm making his glory my chief pursuit. We're called to have a clean conscience. I know who I am. I know what I do. I know what I struggle with. I'm very well aware that apart from something outside of myself, I cannot stand before you or before God and say, I am innocent. That is something that has to come from outside of me. That is something that has to come from God. God has to give me that easy, good conscience that is able to rest in the finished work of what Christ has done. And that sincere faith, man, don't even get me started. I'm the most hypocritical person that I know. There are so many things that I tell you to do, Mr. Richard, that I don't do myself. And I know that, and it eats at me. There are things that I'm calling you to today that I know I do not do. And so I need help. I need help from God. I need help from you. You see, we're all in this together, every single one of us. Every single one of us in this room, as we're going to go about our days, what we need is people to come alongside us and remind us that all of this is available to us in Christ. That every single bit of this we have access to in Christ. That he will come and he will give us a pure heart. That he will wash our conscience clean from all guilt and condemnation. And that he will give us sincere faith to allow us to walk this out faithfully and truthfully and sincerely. I want this. I really do. And I want this for you. But we have it available to us in Christ Let's pray.